there's something so sweet about the quiet and the chorus of these beings outside. So there'll be a lot of words. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Coming. (laughs) And, uh, you know, like I said a couple weeks ago, just, just take what's useful. I spoke last week about this factor of sadha, of faith or confidence, and its role in the path as uh, an initial condition that helps us have enough trust to make effort and eventually see for ourselves what's true. And I said that, that faith is the aim, the goal of faith is always the development of wisdom. And so what I'd like to speak about tonight is one aspect of wisdom. The word in Pali for wisdom is panya. Uh, Anya means knowledge, but a certain specific kind of knowledge. It's related, the root of the word uh, is related to the same word we have in English, gnosis. That nya is the same root. So it's a kind of direct knowledge panya and that prefix pa it means emphatic it's like completely thoroughly so thoroughly knowing panya directly so what is it that we know sometimes it's translated as discernment so wisdom knows two things wisdom discerns skillful from unskillful helpful from unhelpful. It can tell the difference between the the intentions that arise in our own heart and mind to know how to navigate and steer in life. And fundamentally, wisdom knows the difference between suffering and its end. Stress, what leads to stress and how that ends. So this factor of wisdom of, uh, of understanding is essential in our practice. It's both the beginning but also the end of the path. Uh, one of the um, Burmese Sayadaws uh, who teaches here at Spirit Rock sometimes, Sayada Utejaniya, has a very succinct definition of Vipassana that I think is, is useful. He says, Vipassana meditation is being aware of the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. And it's that last piece with the right understanding, that's the wisdom piece. So it's not just being aware in the Satipatthana Sutta, we have these uh, different qualities that are all um, linked together in the refrain Sati Sampajanya and uh, Atapi, mindful, clearly comprehending, understanding, and wholehearted. So, this awareness is always paired in the suttas with this quality of intelligence, of understanding what's being known. So, what I'd like to talk about tonight is one aspect of this, which is right view, how we understand how we can understand our experience. So the Buddha said, just as the dawn is the forerunner and the precursor to the rising of the sun, so is right view the forerunner and precursor of the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths. A beautiful image. In the Noble Eightfold Path, this factor of right view is the first one. So even though the path is can be considered a circle and all of the factors support each other, 
in the Buddha's presentation, he begins with the perspective, how we're looking at things. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, it is wisdom which is seeking for wisdom. So there's that sense that there's something within us that has an intuitive understanding that wants to deepen or grow, that calls us onto the path. So what is right view? First, let's talk about this word view. So in Pali, the word is ditti, which comes from the the verb uh, to see. So it's literally how we're looking at things or a perspective. It's a way of looking at and reflecting on experience that informs and shapes our intentions and goals, our choices and actions. So the view is how we orient our perspective. And that then determines the direction, which is the next factor in the Noble Eightfold Path, the factor of right intention, the trajectory of our action, or sometimes translated right thought. So if the view is off, if the perspective is off, the whole course of action will be off. It's like a map. If you're trying to use a map and you don't have it oriented properly, you don't know where north is, it's not going to be much use. If your map isn't oriented properly, if you're not pointed in the right direction, it doesn't matter how much effort and energy you make. You're not going to get to your destination. There's a naturalist by the name of James Audubon, for whom the Audubon Society was founded, had a very pithy statement about this. He said, when the book and the bird disagree, believe the bird. So looking at what's, what are our maps? What are, the, what are the views that we're bringing to experience and are they actually aligned? Do we keep trying to make the, the experience fit the map? Looking at the bird and going, but, but, but it says it should be this way. There's something wrong with that bird. How come the bird isn't matching? Or do we recognize there must be something wrong with this map I've been carrying around because clearly the bird looks this way. So how we're looking at something is very important. You know, some of us wear, wear glasses, right? So if your glasses are foggy or dirty, everything's going to look blurred. It's not going to be clear. Same thing with our view. It's very interesting in the Buddhist psychology, um, holding a view is a kind of action. It's considered a mental action to take a certain perspective or view. And it's a very powerful action. The view determines our attitudes, our intentions, our inclinations. So the Buddha says, like, just if you plant a grape seed, all of the nourishment that goes into that plant, all of the water and the soil and the sunshine, will all go into the sweetness of the fruit, of the grape, because that's the nature of the seed. And and he says it's the same with right view. When you plant right view, any physical, verbal, or mental deeds will bear that same tone of being skillful and pleasurable and profitable. So view, a perspective, a way of looking. And then there's this word right, right view. It's meant by that, samma. So uh, Donald mentioned the other night uh, this uh, uh, possibly related word, the prefix sam that we have in samadhi. Samma is a different word, uh, it, but it bears this relationship to the English words for summit or summary. So kind of peak, pinnacle, whole, complete. So one way of understanding the Noble Eightfold Path, this word samma is complete or mature. So then we get this translation of wise view or wise understanding. But the word in Pali, samma, is is most commonly used in the same way that we use the word right and wrong in English in contradistinction with another word, uh, micha, right and wrong, saying this is the right view and there's a wrong view. So what's meant by that? Well, if you walk out the road here down the driveway and you ask somebody, how do I get to the Pacific Ocean? And they tell you, take a left on Sir Francis Drake. That's the wrong way. 
you're not going to get you're not going to get to the water they tell you take a right on sir francis drake and keep going that's the right way to go you'll get to the water so this is one of the ways that i understand this word samma on the eightfold noble path each of these factors is the right kind of view intention action and so forth if your goal if your destination is freedom is awakening this is the correct way to look at things if that's what your aim is so the view is very important we need to know where and how to look at something ever been outside and someone says oh do you see the bird and you're like no where and say look look at that big tree and then go a little bit up into the right and you say oh i see the tree oh there it is we needed someone to point it out, to say, look here. And then we can look in that direction and go, oh, I see, it's there, right. So this is the usefulness of having someone point out a specific view, a specific perspective. So right view is not another thing to believe or hold on to. It's about freeing the mind. It's a certain way of looking at things that frees the mind. The Buddha was very clear about this in the texts, particularly about not just the right view, but all of the teachings, saying these are not meant to be clung to. There are two very powerful analogies that he gives in the text. So one is um, he compares his teaching to a snake. He says, if you grab the snake by the tail or by the middle, what's going to happen? It's going to turn around and bite you. And he says, even so, these teachings, if you don't grasp them properly, they will not be for your welfare. That's pretty deep. Someone offering a teaching and saying, look, if you don't hold this thing right, it's not going to help. It might actually hurt you. He says, if you want to grab a snake, you have to grab it right behind the head and hold it right there, and then you can handle it. So he said these teachings are meant to be grasped in the proper way. So right view isn't something to believe in. It's not something to get fixated on. This is the right view and everything else is wrong and I have the true way. That's dogma. It's meant to be applied to our experience to see what the effect is. Does it free the heart? So the other analogy the Buddha gives is he compares his teachings to a raft. He says, suppose someone were trying to cross a great expanse of water to get to the other side to safety, and they find a raft or they make a raft, and they use the raft to get across the water, and they get to the other side where it's safe. And when they get to the other shore, they say, ah, this raft has been so useful to me. It's helped me get across to safety. I should take this raft, I should carry it on my back. It's been so helpful. It's pointless. The raft served its purpose. You leave the raft there. Same thing with the teachings. They're meant for crossing over. They're not meant to be held onto and carried around in that way. So a view is something that's very powerful. The Buddha says, I do not see even a single thing so blameworthy and harmful as wrong view. Wrong view is the worst of things that are blameworthy and harmful. Wow. Just the way I'm looking at things? What's that all about? A view has the power to color our whole world for good or for ill and to determine the intentions how we relate to things. So we do things based on certain views. What happens when humans view the earth as inanimate, something to mine for resources, as not sentient, as uh, not, not finite, right? We end up with oceans full of plastic and strip mining, and oil spills and so forth because of a view. What happens when we view animals as 
not feeling pain. We end up with factory farming, millions and millions of creatures suffering based on a view. A number of years ago, I read, um, read the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, devastating uh, account of uh, a few decades in the late 1800s when uh, this country was pushing west and um, systematically exterminating the First Nation people on these lands. This one passage really stood out to me. It's a, a passage about um, this uh, one colonel who, uh, after the Civil War ended, the government was trying to sign more treaties with the warrior chiefs in the Midwest and um, at Fort Laramie in, in uh, present-day Wyoming. He uh, called to this, uh, this one chief, uh, Spotted Tail. And so this is a passage about when Spotted Tail came, came in to meet uh, Colonel Ma- Mainadier at Fort Laramie. Spotted Tail's daughter, Fleetfoot, was very ill. He hoped the soldiers would make her well again. A few days later, when the colonel heard that Fleetfoot had died en route, he rode out with a company of soldiers in an ambulance to meet the mourning procession of Brule. It was a cold, sleety day. The Wyoming landscape was bleak, streams locked in ice, brown hills patched with snow. The chief's daughter, dead, had been wrapped in a deerskin, tightly thonged and creosoted with smoke. This crude pall was suspended between her favorite ponies, a pair of white Mustangs. When Spotted Tail's party reached the fort, Colonel Maynard turned the entire garrison out to honor the grieving Indians. The colonel invited Spotted Tail into his headquarters and offered sympathy for the loss of his daughter. The chief said that in the days when the white men and the Indians were at peace, he had brought his daughter to Fort Laramie many times, that she had loved the fort, and he would like to have her burial scaffold mounted in the post-ceremony, post-cemetery. Colonel Maynard immediately granted permission. He was surprised to see tears well up in Spotted Tail's eyes. He did not know that an Indian could weep. That's a view. What happens when we don't see other human beings as human? How we look at things is really powerful. This is a shorter quote, just as chilling. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That's easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the peacemakers for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. That was from Hermann Göring, the second most powerful man in the Nazi military during World War II, next to Hitler. A view. So the Buddha says, I do not see even a single thing so blameworthy and harmful as wrong view. So how are we looking at things? What is the understanding with which we are practicing? This is very important. And when that understanding is aligned with the teachings Everything else follows. The Buddha says, when there's right view, right intention springs forth. When there's right intention, right speech, action, and livelihood spring forth. When those are in line, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration spring forth. So I want to talk about right view in three different ways. Right view is one of those teachings in the texts that the more you look at it, the, the vaster it becomes. It's kind of like a fractal. You look at any one part of right view and it starts to open up into the, into the rest of the teachings. And there are several suttas where um, 
the Buddha describes it or his chief disciple Sariputta describes right view and he keeps expounding different ways that you can understand right view because it's so it kind of encompasses all of the teaching so tonight I just want to talk about three different aspects of it I want to talk about what's known as mundane right view how it applies to our everyday worldly life I want to talk about right view as the understanding of uh, the laws of nature. And I want to talk about right view as the Four Noble Truths, which is known as supramundane right view. So mundane right view begins with an affirmation of our life, of this relative world, our connections and relationships and actions, the bonds that we have in life and uh, the efficacy of our actions, that actions have effects. So mundane right view sees this world, this ordinary everyday world as the ground for creating the conditions for awakening based on how we're looking at our life. So this is the the classical uh, passage in the texts on mundane right view. There is what is given what is offered and what is sacrificed. There is fruit, the fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and father. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously. There are in this world good and virtuous renunciates and Brahmins who have realized for themselves through direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. So that's, that's a lot. I could spend the rest of the evening just talking about that, but I'm just going to go through a few of the main points briefly. It starts with saying there is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. So here the Buddha is pointing to the power of generosity and the fact that each of us has received so much just to be born just to be alive, to have food and air and water every day. There is that which is given, that which is offered, that which is sacrificed. So many of us have people at home who are making sacrifices for us to be here right now, including us uh, teaching. So reflecting on this, what is the result? It lifts the heart. We feel the value of generosity. We experience gratitude. We get a sense of life being a cycle, a web of relationships of giving and receiving. And through those bonds of generosity, there can be a sense of belonging. Not only what we've received, but what we've offered, what we've given. So this places us in a context in the world, a sense of belonging. There is the fruit and result of good and bad actions. This is the basic understanding of kamma. That actions have effects. That what we say and do has consequences and we have to live out the results. And we see this in our own experience. This is not some esoteric teaching. So how many of you have experienced over the course of these days and weeks things that you've said or done that you regret coming back, right? Feeling remorse. We, have, we live with the consequences of our actions. Just being here in this hall is the result of certain actions that each of us has taken in our life. What we think, say, and do matter. And in many ways, this is actually good news. It doesn't say that everything's predetermined. It says that what we do right now has an effect in the future. That we can actually shift the course of our life. That we can actually shape our mind stream based on the choices and actions we take right here and now. So the teaching on, on, on Kama is a very empowering teaching. It points to this fact that the only thing we actually own in this world are the results of our actions. 
Nothing else belongs to us. Everything else we have to give back. But the results of our actions we inherit. And so again, this mundane right view is saying, hey, pay attention to what you do. Because guess what? If you make your bed, you got to sleep in it. The things that we do and say will bear results. And we see this directly in our own mind, particularly as we practice, right? We can see when there's ill will or hatred. That's a state of suffering, right? When there's greed and craving, that's a state of suffering. We rob ourselves of contentment and peace in that moment. The mind is in a state of lack. So this also includes understanding what Arena spoke of last night and what I spoke of a couple weeks ago, understanding the difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome, the skillful and the unskillful, starting to discern that. Then there are these other parts of mundane right view that for us today seem, uh, don't really line up with our cosmology or worldview. There is this world and the other world, talking about the afterlife, rebirth. There are beings who are spontaneously reborn. What's that? <laughs> right? Really? So there are different ways of understanding these. I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, one is uh, just recognizing the part of the, the functional, from the functional perspective, talking about rebirth is, can be seen as a way of heightening the importance of ethical action. Right, because if there's a world view that it's not just this one time around, you're coming back. It's like, okay, now I gotta really pay attention to what I do. <laughs> so this is one way of understanding the purpose of that view, whether or not we believe it. Um, Joseph has a wonderful, Joseph Goldstein has a wonderful mantra around these things. Who knows? <laughs> just that sense of, of, of being open to possibility. I, I had a professor in, uh, in college who was um, kind of post-colonial literary criticist, criticism uh, professor and kind of post-modern deconstructionist. Very, very kind of fascinating ways of looking at language. Very in line, actually, with uh, emptiness and, and Buddhist theory in, in some ways, which I didn't know at the time. But she said something that stayed in my mind very clear. She said... Um, I don't believe anything, which also means that I don't disbelieve anything. It's actually very deep if you think about it. So not believing something also means to actually say that I'm not going to believe that is a certain kind of belief itself. So there's just that sense of holding it open. Then there's this phrase, there is mother and father. Very important. Lots of meanings there. We are the product of our conditioning. Each of us has been raised in a particular family. We have a lineage, we have ancestors. We, ha- we owe a debt of gratitude to our parents just for, just for giving us life, if nothing else. Right? Those, those relationships can be very complicated, not always a relationship of um, ease or love or gratitude. Even in the time of the Buddha, There are stories in the texts of Sariputta, the Buddha's uh, chief disciple, one of his two chief disciples, um, whose mother had seven children, all of whom became monks, and she hated it. She was always criticizing them and saying, you you know, you're loafing off of the, you know, uh, uh, prophets of others. Why don't you go out and work and earn a living? (laughs) So, and yet here's the Buddha saying, there is mother and father. So this is also affirming the, um, the importance of our roles and relationships in life. Saying that each of us has specific relationships. We are a son or a daughter or a child, a parent, a brother, a sister, a sibling, right? And the Buddha is saying, there is, there is this aspect to our life where we have these roles and to treat them with care to hold, them, to hold them with honor and a sense of responsibility. 
So all of this is about learning to see our relationships, our life, our actions as an integral part of our practice, not as something separate or extra, or worse, as some kind of a barrier or an impediment to our path, or the sense of, uh, you know, oh, it doesn't matter, which is a kind of wrong view that our actions don't matter or spiritual bypassing thinking. I just, I'm just not going to deal with this stuff. I'll just get to some, some state that'll solve all of it. And then the last piece where the Buddha says, there are those who have realized peace through direct knowledge. That sense that there's the possibility of awakening, that there are people who have actually walked this path and realized its truth. There's something that's possible here. So all of this lays the context for the path for the rest of the path. So this is what's known as mundane right view. Actions have effects, our relationships matter, and there's the possibility of awakening. Supramundane right view is the view that leads to liberation. It's a view that says if if you look at things in this way, it will free you from suffering and stress. So how do we cultivate this? How do we, how do we develop this kind of freeing view? Buddha says there are two causes for the arising of right view. First, you have to hear it from someone else, the voice of another. We actually have to, someone has to point it out to us and say, look at it in this way. That's the external cause. And then the internal cause is our own careful attention deep attention, really looking closely at our experience, taking that view in and actually investigating it. So this right view can be understood in different ways. One way it can be understood as seeing things through the lens of the laws of nature understanding the laws of nature that actually govern the mind and the body. So for example, this is a different law of nature. This is a law of, uh, I guess it's physics. So if I lift this case, this glasses case, if I let this go, does anyone think it's gonna stay there? Does anyone think it's gonna float up? No, we all know it's gonna fall, right? There's no surprise if I let go that it does that. There was a time when we didn't know that, when we were very young, but we've all learned the law of gravity and we understand it. So we're not surprised when something falls from a height because it's just following the laws of nature. We don't argue with gravity. Now, when you sit for 45 minutes or an hour and your knee starts to hurt, do you complain in the mind? Is there that same understanding of like, oh, bodies hurt. I referred to Sayadaw Utejaniya at the beginning of the, of the evening. So one of, one of his clever kind of turns of phrases, um, if there's pain in your, if you're sitting and there's pain in your knee, why is there pain? Why is there pain? Because you have a body. That's the truth. That's what these bodies do. They hurt sometimes. It's not something gone wrong. Bodies hurt. So this is starting to see the laws of nature in the mind and body, how they actually work, and beginning to live more in line with them. I was just on retreat this past November um, at the Forest Refuge for a month. So uh, I'm 41, and... This very strange thing started happening when I was on retreat. Every morning uh, after about the first week when I woke up, I would get out of bed and look at my pillow and there would be hair on the pillow. Not just like one or two, like a lot. And at first I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then after, after about a week, I realized what was happening because every morning there was more hair. I was like, I'm losing my hair. <laughs> This is new. 
You know, I looked in the mirror, I was like, oh yeah, look at that. I was just interested though. There wasn't wasn't any suffering in it. This is the law of nature. The body's aging, that's what it does. It's not something gone wrong. A number of years ago, I was very sick for about three years, chronically ill. Fatigue, headaches, body pain, day after day after day. I had a lot of practice with right view. This is the nature of the body. The body is of the nature to grow old, to get sick. The body is of the nature to die. I'm not exempt. Right? So there's a big difference between why is this happening to me? How come? What's going to happen? How could I have made it different? What do I need to do? What's going to be? All of that. It shouldn't be happening. Wrong view, suffering. Right view, oh, the body's sick. It's following its nature, no suffering. So when we see things with the right perspective, the suffering ceases, right? If you were to expect this to stay where it was and it fell down, you might be very upset. How come it's not staying there? It's supposed to stay there. So when you bring your mind back to the breath and it wanders off again, do you get frustrated? What's the view? What's the expectation? Are we expecting reality to do something that it can't? Expecting things to be otherwise than they are. So the more we start to see in line with the way things are, the less we suffer. And this is at all levels. Um, A number of years ago, I spent some time in um, the monasteries in the Thai forest tradition, and I was on my way up to Canada to the monastery outside of uh, Ottawa. And there was some misunderstanding with the the bus schedule. And um, I ended up not being able to get to the monastery for about 24 hours later than I said I would. And I was, I was so anxious. I called the abbot who I'd never met and I was apologizing and I'm so sorry and I must have read the schedule wrong and I won't be there till tomorrow. And his response was just, oh, this sort of thing's normal for samsara. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, oh, of course. Like we make mistakes. We, mi- we, we misread the schedule. The bus doesn't show up. That's the way it goes sometimes. Right view, no suffering. (laughs) It should work. It's my fault. Why didn't I do it differently? I should have looked more carefully. A lot of suffering. So how do we understand what's happening in our mind and body from moment to moment? Are we understanding it as an unfolding of causes and conditions, just as a natural series of events and changes? So from the Buddhist perspective, the understanding is that every moment of experience is a coming together of different causes and conditions, and they keep changing. So this is an aspect of right view, seeing things in terms of causes and conditions rather than as a person. Have you noticed that you're not in control? What arises in your mind and your body? Can you control it? Can you say to your body, don't get sick? Can you say to your knee, don't hurt? Can you say to your mind, only have these thoughts? Stop thinking. Can you say to your heart, feel this way? The body has its own agenda. The mind has its own agenda. Can you tell your mind to be peaceful? To be happy, to stop suffering? Stop, stop suffering. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) So each moment is, is created and conditioned by so many other things. We're not in charge. Pain in the body, restlessness in the mind, sleepiness. How much do we take it personally? Blame ourselves or think that we should be able to control it. That's a wrong view. It's just causes and conditions. It's just the process of nature unfolding. 
So what are the views that we have about our practice? One of the most common views, one of the most common wrong views that we have about our practice is that if we're experiencing pleasant sensations in mind states, it's going well. Yeah, I'm in there, right? And we take credit for it. (laughs) If I'm doing it right, it should feel this way. It should be peaceful, the mind should be concentrated, a little bit of bliss, maybe some piti. And when the concentration wanes and the mind is distracted and there's restlessness and craving, ah, my practice is falling apart. What happened? How do I get back there? Judging our practice based on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, based on the content of our experience, and taking it all personally. These are wrong views. So we're trying to do the practice and make it work. Our job is just to practice, just to show up. So the Buddha talks about how we can pay attention in our practice and in life. There's a way to do this correctly, wisely, and unwisely. He says, there's a case when someone who hasn't practiced doesn't, can't see what's fit for attention and what's not fit for attention. This being so, they attend to things that aren't helpful and don't attend to things that are helpful. This is how they attend inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been that, what was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or they are inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it going? Sound familiar? (laughs) Right? I wonder how I'll feel at the end of the retreat. (laughs) I wonder how people will respond to me. What am I going to get? I wonder what I'll do later. What was that like? Why was I doing it that way before? How was I practicing? So seeing things in terms of self, in terms of past and future, this is an unwise way to attend. One who attends wisely sees things thus. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering, and this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And the Buddha points to this saying, this is the path to stream entry, to the first breakthrough to the unconditioned. So this is starting to understand right view in another way. That right view is seeing things in terms of the four noble truths rather than in terms of self. And this pattern, it's not just seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths, but actually seeing things in terms of this pattern of the arising, the cause, the ceasing, and the way leading to the ceasing. That pattern of arising, cause, ending, and path can be applied to many different aspects of our experience. So I'm just going to talk about it tonight in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So fundamentally, supramundane right view means seeing things in this way, instead of our habitual ways of looking at things. These kind of the normal habits and patterns and programs of our mind where we get stuck. How am I doing? Am I getting it right? My concentration should be better. How are they doing? Oh, that person's really not getting it. And look at them. Wow, God. I am such a failure, I'm hopeless. They're so mindful, right? Or why does that person keep moving? Why can't they just be still? So things, seeing things in terms of ourself, other people, or seeing things in terms of the past and the future. When is it gonna happen? 
What will happen? It was better before. What did I do last time? Uh, Steve Armstrong, one of the senior teachers in our tradition, says, uh, there's nothing like a good sit to ruin the rest of your day. (laughs) Always trying to get back there. So we can put down the external activities of our lives, the technology, the reading, the talking. It's much harder to put down the internal activities. These habits of viewing things in terms of ourself, in terms of the past and the future. Is there any point, any place in the self, in other people, in the past or the future that won't take you into stress and struggle? Look and see what's happening in your mind. Whenever you're thinking about yourself, someone else, the past or the future, where does it end up? This is attending to experience with inappropriate attention, unwise attention. The Buddha says, don't look at things that way. That's not helpful to look at things in terms of self, other, past, future. He says, instead, look at it from this perspective. Where is there suffering? How does it arise? Where does it end? And how's that process happen? This is the fundamental point to understand stress and its end. When do we struggle? Where does that come from? How does it arise? What happens when we let go? So this means meeting the difficulties. Sharda talked about this a few nights ago when she talked about dukkha. The willingness to include the stress, the struggle. To recognize this is the way things are. Life is unresolved. Things are incomplete. They never quite get there. There's always something else. So practicing with this view means putting down that habit to avoid the discomfort, to try to manipulate things, to get it the way we want, to try to wriggle out of it, and instead just meeting it, contemplating it as it is. Oh, there's suffering here. This is suffering. What's its cause? Where is it coming from? How does it end? When does it cease? How does that happen? And in particular, anytime you're suffering, anytime there's struggle, look and see how am I viewing things? What's the expectation in the mind? Do I have some idea about how things should be that I'm superimposing? on reality. When the book and the bird differ, believe the bird. How tightly are you holding on to that map about the way things should be? Struggling to make a square peg fit in a round hole. It should fit, it should fit, it's not fitting. How come it's not fitting? Oh, this is the way it is. This is what's happening. This isn't something you have to believe. It's not even something you need to agree with. Just look at your own experience. Is there suffering? Is there struggle? Is there a cause? What's the result of holding on to an expectation about the way things should be? What happens when you let go, when you put that down? Does the struggle end or diminish? So check and see, is there a wrong view present? Is there an outdated map that you're working from? There's um, a man by the name of Stephen Jenkinson, who's a chaplain in Canada, also does a lot of work uh, with the Uh, First Nation tribe, the Cree Indians there. He studied with Cree elders in Quebec. And uh, he uh, he teaches and um, talks a lot on death and dying. And so in his work as a chaplain, he's always coming up against the, the ideas that people and families have about the dying process. 
and he uses this little phrase. He says, uh, he says, the book of supposed to. It's not supposed to be this way. He says, where is it written in the book of supposed to? It's a wrong view. So can we see things from a different perspective? Can we start to see things as a natural unfolding of causes and conditions? Can we start to see things in terms of stress? It's arising and it's ending. Can we have a sense of the vastness of all the different conditions that are coming together, that are outside of our control? Pay attention particularly to when you're taking things personally in the practice. This is one of the biggest obstacles on the path. It's known as Sakkaya Ditti, which means personality view. The habit of seeing things through the lens of a self, interpreting experience through the lens of uh, a separate person known as me. Donald will talk more about this tomorrow. And taking things personally. It's my fault, it should be this way, I should be this way. Or the self-improvement project, turning the practice into trying to make ourselves better, somehow to be lovable or acceptable or good enough. Even thinking that I'm the one who's practicing. And then when it's and then and then I evaluate my practice and if it's doing well then I feel good about myself and if I evaluate the practice as not doing well then I feel shitty about myself. This whole cycle of suffering all created from viewing things from the wrong perspective. The uh, the kicker is that the personality can't solve any of it. It can't solve the problem. All of the, all of the um, programs and drives that are running to be someone, to get something, to have something, to control things, to make them the way we want, to get rid of something, to try to attain something, to just try to disappear and get out. The sense of self is actually created by all of those habits and programs. Wanting, wanting, wanting to become something, wanting to get rid of something, wanting to have something, wanting to feel something. The sense of self arises out of those drives. So it can't solve them because it's a product of them. So the more there's a sense of me trying to do something, it's just an endless loop. So the Buddha is saying, just shift your perspective. Look for where there's struggle and suffering. How does it arise? Where does it end? The freedom that the Buddha is pointing to doesn't come from being able to control the world. Trying to make things be just the way we want them, internally or externally. It comes from understanding from seeing things clearly. It's so radical. It's not about changing things in our own direct experience internally or making making them the way we want them to be. In a moment of seeing clearly when we have the right understanding, oh, this is how it is. It's changing. Oh, it's not, it's not satisfying. Oh, it's just this way. When we have the right understanding, the suffering ceases. In that moment of clear recognition, the reactivity in the heart and the mind stop. Stop. 
This doesn't mean that, that we stop engaging in the world, that we don't take action to protect other people or beings from harm, that we don't work to change the conditions in life. That's the mundane right view. Our actions have effects. We have to take care of these bodies and our relationships and one another. It's saying from the perspective of our moment-to-moment experience, in our own heart and mind, where does suffering arise and how does it cease? And that happiness and freedom isn't about getting something, some object, some state, having some experience. Instead of wanting something else, it's about seeing accurately and the, the letting go that happens when we see clearly. And, and each of you, I believe, has, has already had experiences of this. Just a moment of being aware of an unpleasant sensation and being able to see, oh, it's just unpleasant. It's not comfortable, but seeing the difference between an unpleasant sensation and everything else that can get created around it. The resistance, the reactivity, the stories, the fear, the projection, the not good enough. The Dhamma is always what's happening in this moment. It's not in seeking something else. Seeing a thought as a thought is just a thought. Seeing a mood or an emotion, oh, this is fear. It's just fear. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. But that's all it is. It's just that much. It's not the content of our experience that matters. If it were, this practice would be futile because we're not in control. It's the clarity of our seeing and our relationship to what's happening. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And he's encouraging us to look at things in that way. Where is their struggle? How does it end? This is the aim of all of the practice, all of the teaching, the unshakable liberation of the heart through non-clinging, through letting go. And believing any of this isn't going to free us. We can't think ourselves into seeing things as they are. We actually have to look, which is why we simplify so radically why we're encouraging you to to develop the steadiness of mindfulness and concentration with the right understanding so that the mind can start to see more clearly the difference between just what's happening and the views and the projections and the reactivity that arise in relationship to it. So take this and use it intelligently while you're practicing. Just remind yourself from time to time, oh, it's just like this. This is natural. Of course the body's restless. Of course it's tired. That's what bodies do. It's just due to causes and conditions. Where is their suffering? What's it resting on? Is there some expectation about the way things should be? Is the mind holding on to something? How does it end? What happens when you let go? So all of us are on a journey of deepening our understanding of right view. And so the, the path is one of continuing to refine it. We hear the teachings, we reflect on them, and we put them into practice. We see, how does this apply for me? Find our own understanding of it. 
So I'll stop here for this evening. Take what's useful and just leave the rest. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. allowing the words to fall away. So we have a little time for walking and then we'll come back for the last sit and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.